you're listening to the Very Brave Podcast, the podcast for women who are looking to find their brave and take more bold steps in life. We'll be chatting with women from all walks of life about redefining bravery away from just physical and heroic battlefield acts and being more inclusive of emotional, moral and spiritual bravery. The very things women the world over are participating in every single day. If you're ready to be inspired by stories of feminine bravery from across the globe and you know it's time to make your next bold move, then get comfortable, grab a coffee and let's get started. Hello and thank you so much for joining me today, Emma Hassar. How are you? Hi, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me. So, Please, Emma, there's, I know we've got so much to talk about today, but can you start just by letting everyone know just a little bit about you? Yep. I am Emma Hassar. I'm a former parliamentarian. I was the federal member for the seat of Lindsay in Western Sydney from 2016 until 2019. During my term in office, I gave a couple of really, well, I was in opposition, so it was a bit hard to do things which, you know, got noticed, but um, I gave a couple of pretty important speeches about kids with special needs and also about my lived experience of, as a survivor of domestic and family violence. And my career came to a grinding halt uh, as, as a result of sexual harassment and um, misconduct by my own party, which is the Labor Party. And the rest, I suppose, as they say, is history after I won a successful defamation case and received an apology for what was done to me. I moved to Perth and I've created a business called Brave by Design and talked to people about what it takes to be courageous in times where things are really quite not so easy to be courageous in. And this is really exciting because we're here today to talk about bravery and um and how we might be able to redefine that as women because perhaps uh, there's a, a definition that society accepts of bravery, which is often due to acts of physicality um, on the battlefield. It's, its ultimate form is valour, but we don't often find ourselves in those situations every day. And, um, and as I was mentioning to you off camera, when I came across the Governor-General's list uh, of bravery awards, um, we didn't feature very prominently, we we women. And I was thinking, you know, I know I've been brave in my life. There's been numerous times, but I haven't received a bravery medal for them for those times. And I'm pretty sure that other women also believe that they've been brave. So how would you personally define bravery? I think for me, uh, bravery has two elements. First of all, there is an element of bravery where you're approaching a situation and you've no idea of what the outcome is going to be. So you're going into something completely unknown or completely foreign or maybe that you're just not prepared for or capable of or whatever, and you are prepared to take that risk no matter the outcome. You might fail, fall, die in some really bad instances, but you've no idea about how that's going to end. So that that takes a stack of bravery to actually make that decision to go ahead and to do that thing, whatever that thing is. It could be launching a business. It could be, you know, running for public office. It could be anything that you decide to do that has no actual outcome that is guaranteed. Um, so that for me is the first sort of, you know, concept of bravery. The second element to that that I would say is incredibly brave is for people who have suffered deep trauma or been through situations that are horrendous that most of us 
can go through life without having to experience. Unfortunately, I haven't had that kind of life. I don't know anything about not experiencing those kinds of awful things. But bravery in that aspect is continuing to show up and to not being not allowing those events that happen to define you or to swallow you up and to take you away. That is, what can I get out of this? How can I learn from this? And how can I keep going when this is what I thought was going to happen? This is what I got. This is where I am now, but I'm going to keep going. So I think for me, bravery has definitely got two elements where there's that really conscious choice to, to, to do something and to take a leap of faith. Um, and then there's the element of, okay, that happened. What do I do next? Hmm. And if you think about your own life, what are the moments where you recognise or the standouts uh, where you recognise now that you were really brave? Again, nothing no one would ever give me a medal for. I think my first, the first real realisation I have of that is when I was um, 15. So I was raised in a like a very violent household. My dad had um, issues with alcohol dependence and my mum had some mental health issues. And at 15, I found myself uh, as a state ward. I had nowhere to live. I had two parents that were completely incapable and not functional to look after me. And at 15, I mean, you're pretty vulnerable. Like there was no safety net. There was no security net to catch me. You know, there's lots of intergenerational trauma in my family. So there wasn't sort of aunties or uncles or grandparents around that could really just sort of scoop me up and look after me. So at 15, I found myself living in a caravan on a friend's front lawn, no parents in sight. I'd finished year 10. I'd done quite well. I had a couple of A's and B's on my year 10 certificate. And the following year, I decided to move to Queensland. I didn't know anyone in Queensland. I didn't know anything about Queensland, just that I, I want to, I, I'm just going to get away from here. And I lived interstate for two years and I, I just remember going past the university one day and I really hadn't known what I wanted to do at that point. I went, I want to be a teacher. I want to be a teacher when I grow up. And I had no Year 12 certificate. So I enrolled in into TAFE in Queensland and got my Year 12 certificate, got my entry and acceptance into university. And I didn't think that was very brave back then. Quite frankly, if you would have asked me, I wouldn't have thought that that was a brave act. But as a 40-year-old mum of three children now, would I look back mm-hmm. on 15-year-old me and say, girl, you get a gold star for that because that was incredibly a brave thing to do when the obvious choices for me would have been to either numb out and just totally zero out of all of the pain and the hurt and the hardship and the trauma and find my way to drugs or, or anything else that kind of distracted me for that. But I chose to do something different. I mm. chose, I had no idea of the Queensland move. I had no idea about TAFE. I just, it was like, it was feeling my way in the dark. And so as an adult now looking back, I would say that was probably the first recognisable moment where I had to be brave. And there's been a lot of those since leaving my ex, my baby daddy, Um, so the kid's dad. You know, there was a lot of financial abuse in that relationship. There was a lot of emotional abuse and continues to be and there was physical violence on a few occasions and my kids were sort of coming into their early early teens, late, late primary school age and we'd been separated for a really long time but because of that abuse, he just refused to do the final kind of financial settlements and the final mm. kid arrangements. And um, 
I just, I, I ended up getting a contracted job. I had a contracted job for six months. I had a tax return and I went, you beaut, I'm done. I am out of here. Um, and I had to take on a rental, which I didn't have any rental history because I've been living in a, like a mortgage time for 15 years. And I realised how brave that was to just, you know, be the catalyst in my kids' eyes for breaking up the family and, and to, to try and do this on my own. I mean, I'd been a single parent for a really long time before that anyway, emotionally, physically. And I think that there was a couple of weeks there where my dad brought money over to me to pay my rent. I called a friend from the, the supermarket and, and she's like, oh, you sound really down. What's wrong? I said, I'm just trying to work out. And I was literally putting, you know, grocery items back on the shelf because I couldn't afford them. And then she just showed up and, and paid for my groceries. And I'm very proud my whole life you know I've not ever asked for help um and if I have it's only because I've absolutely needed it but I didn't ask for her to come and do that and 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 even to accept that help that there's there's an act of bravery in that as well like you know I'm vulnerable here I need I need I do need the help I'm not going to ask for it but so yeah leaving that relationship was incredibly brave and I think you know women underestimate how much courage that actually takes and we constantly hear this rhetoric in society although it's you know becoming a small hum rather than a big megaphone uh, why doesn't she just leave mm. there are loads and loads and loads of elements that go into that financial uncertainty there is you know the parenting of kids who have you know had some regular input of that other person but also the other person's reaction I probably didn't plan on the reaction being as violent as what it was when I did leave, and that's when we know that women who experience domestic and family violence are their most, I suppose, vulnerable and, and at risk when, when they do leave, and that was certainly true in my case. So there was a lot of bravery and courage uh, involved. I walked out with my things, so I was allowed to take my things, but I wasn't allowed to take any of the kids' things. So we had no beds no white goods, no brown goods, no clothes, toys. There were a lot of things that, you know, we just had to start again and and um, we did one by one, you know. I think buying my, um, uh, I was given a fridge initially because of this crappy old fridge that just obviously was someone's beer fridge, which was fine. It kept the stuff cold, you know. We had enough food. We didn't live too far from the shops, which is great, so we could, you know, do regular trips. But I remember buying a secondhand but new to me fridge and it was a few hundred dollars and I'm like oh my god this fridge just represented so much of my life you are listening to the very brave podcast and the only thing that I have brand new when I when I moved was a, a lawnmower that my dad had given me and he brought us a tv I still have the lawnmower and I'm like, that lawnmower is going with me. So was, you know, my parents have been pretty unreliable, you know, throughout my entire life. So this lawnmower is like my thing. And I'm like, no, that is my thing. Like I can mow my own lawns. I have my own lawnmower. And my dad gave it to me because it's like, yeah, well, you can't go through life without a lawnmower. I'm like, dad, have you looked around? Um, but that was, you know, his, his big important uh, item that I needed. And, um, yeah, so I think that as women there are a lot of things that, when we're leaving those relationships, we don't necessarily um, think about and or mm. think about as being an act of bravery. And I suppose, you know, my third act of bravery, I, my life is like in all these acts really. And I feel like sometimes I've lived 16 lifetimes in one, mm. one short period was what happened to me at the end of my political career. And 
basically went from, you know, just enjoying my life, raising my three kids as a single parent, representing my community, whom I loved, who I did a good job for, who I got up every day and went to work for and probably did too much work for was what happened to me, you know, once those those headlines hit that I, you know, apparently flashed my colleague and and there were there were media camped on my front door and they would chase me back and forth. Like if I left the house, they would follow me. And at first I didn't accept that what was being done to me was being done by my own party. I, you know, was incredibly loyal to them. It was quite a, a toxic relationship in the end and I see a lot of uh, the hallmarks between my domestically violent personal relationship with what happened to me in the Labor Party. And people were saying to me, I mean, you know, like, this is this is the Labor Party doing this to you, this is this is them, blah, blah, blah. And and I didn't, I didn't engage. I just, no, no, you're wrong, you're wrong. And I I made excuses, I justified them, I defended them. Only to have that realisation that all these people who I'd been incredibly loyal to and served with just, you know, absolute vulnerability and authenticity to would actually do this to me. And, mm. and it was the same realisation that I'd had to have with my ex-partner, with the kid's dad. You, you say you love me, you say you support me, and then you do all this thing. And it was exactly the same in the Labor Party. Like, what? So coming to those terms and then cutting those ties and I remember probably two two moments most distinctly in that entire reporting period. Um, Lisa, I was like, sorry, every journalist in the country had called me. They all wanted the story. I was getting offers to to sell it to a newspaper, to sell it to Channel 7's um, Sunday program. They were leaving me notes under the, you know, not bank notes, um, little yeah. notes under the door to say, hey, please get in contact. They were waiting for me when I'd come home. And I refused all of them. And the only interview that I gave was to the public broadcaster, to Lee Sales. One, because Lee Sales is the toughest political interviewer in the country. And, you know, David Spears, you can say you're tough, but actually I'm terrified of Lee Sales. And so I agreed to give Lee Sales an interview to tell my side and to finally have a voice, to finally sort of say my piece. And Bill Shorten had said, oh, it's a terrible idea. She'll eat you alive. And then his chief of staff was saying the same thing. And I had other people in my ear, don't do it, don't do it. And I said, guys, this is my reputation. This is my life. And I am not going to be the flasher of parliament ever. Like this is absolute. And I really had to push back on these people who I thought were acting or had acted in my best interest or did have my best interest at heart, I really had to just go, no, I'm going to listen to my gut and actually some of the other advice I'm getting. But I was so loyal and so almost Stockholm syndromed to them Mm. that it was a really difficult decision to make. So I made that decision, gave the interview, and immediately when that interview went to ER, all the trolling, all of the awful takes in the media, all of the shit reporting that I'd been subjected to for 2,500 articles prior to that, and there were 2,500 written articles. I still have them in a file buried in a box. One day I'm sure I'll go back and read them all. But that moment, that decision to, to do that, to go against what everyone wanted me to do and to, to take control back in my life, um, that was that was brave, and then to make the decision to sue them, to, to take on a defamation case because I had no idea what they were going to say. And this is politics, right? Like who knows how, how dark and how murky this is going to get. And 
went through that defamation case and um, I was so scared that the option was to sue like quite a number of outlets and I was like, no, let's just do one. Like I can't, like mentally I couldn't have taken it on anyway. But to, to do that and to go against the grain where there were so many people going, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Just go away. Let's bury her. You know, they thought that I was vulnerable and weak and on my own out there in Western Sydney with no partner no family support without the network that exists for some of those other more powerful men. Like I definitely did not have a million-dollar benefactor paying my legal fees, definitely Mm -hmm. didn't have access to that, definitely didn't have access to the old boys' club where my dad was a lawyer and -and so-and-so was going to help me. I had no access to that and, you know, continuing to do that and, and to push right back I think was was quite brave but it was for me it was for my kids but it was also I don't want to see this ever happen again Mm. you know like what was done to me was excruciating and I was pulled apart limb by limb in the media and at some point in that reporting phase I was like I don't even feel like they're talking about a human anymore like I'm still a living breathing equal to you all yet here you are talking about me as though I don't even exist so that was I think you know, the, probably the key standout moments where I was here and I was on this path and I really just had to make a, a choice and, and be brave and just pivot and go, no, that's what you want me to do. That is not the right thing for me to do. I'm going to go that way. I'm going to go against the ground. I'm going to push back and I'm going to go off in this direction. No idea how it's going to work out. I think I do have a bit of a strong regret about that time and that reporting where I didn't reclaim my, my voice earlier. And it's the same in the horrible relationship that I was in. It was my only regret is that I didn't come into that sooner and say, actually, no, we don't talk about women like this. And this guy has been fired from my staff. That's why he's making these allegations. So let's just call it for what it is. He's bitter. He's an entitled male. He's 10 years older than me. He comes from a dynastical, you know, Labor Party family. You want to keep going? There's your cause notice for, you know, from a lawyer and, and I just wish that I had have had that courage a little bit sooner. I don't think anyone ever gets to a point where they're like, oh, no, I wish I delayed that courage. I wish I was less brave <laughs> at that point. You know, no one ever says that. So I suppose that's my biggest thing now is that what I do next is important to empower the people that are coming behind me. You know, and I look at Grace and Brittany with their tenacity and the way that they're fronting up and they're showing up and I think, yeah, that's brave. And I think um, you've mentioned um, courage and bravery so far, and I think one of the things that we've been able to identify during the course of doing these interviews is that bravery is something that we determine upon reflection, but courage is something that we summon in the moment. Often we might know that we're using courage because there is a physical reaction in our body. So do you ever you know, get butterflies in your stomach or feel nauseous or goosebumps when you're in that moment where you've got a decision to make or an action to take? Yeah, I used to. So I used to kind of like before I would go and do something that was incredibly brave, there's this speech that I gave about Pauline Hanson. So she famously stood up in the Senate and she said, children on the autism spectrum don't deserve to be in mainstream classrooms. I'm paraphrasing. Don't sue me, Pauline. They don't deserve to be here. They need. They take too much of the teacher's time and blah, blah, blah. And obviously it was a really emotional issue for me because I have a son that's been diagnosed as autistic since he was a little boy. He's now 15 and, and doing incredibly well. But 
for me, that was really personal. Like politics became incredibly personal in that moment and I went out to front the media cameras and I had not slept the night before because I was just so enraged that we would have an elected representative of this country in this day and age say that, that they should be excluded. I'm like, mate, read the room. Like we do lots mm. of inclusion these days. I remember sort of sort of almost trembling in that moment and, and I had written this massive speech and and not only a few weeks before this one I was going to do, I'd made a mistake out on the on in an interview and you know, ABC asked me a question off camera. I thought the cameras were off and I turned around and said something and I said, what are you laughing at? And it was kind of all jovial, but of course they got it on camera because rookie mistake, they are always recording. Um, <laughs> and then they turned it around and just made me look like an absolute goose, right? So it was in- incredibly embarrassing. And I'm like, well, I'm not doing that anymore. Like once bitten, twice shy. And it was this moment of, no, you've got to stand up. You are listening to The Very Brave Podcast. It's not just your boy you're standing up for yourself. It's actually all the mums and dads who are getting their kids ready this morning. It's all those kids who are going off into a mainstream school who belong there, by the way. You have to do this. So I'd overcome this. I don't ever want to do that again because they totally, like, bombarded me last time. I'm not going to do it again. And then I went into um, the press secretary's office and I said, no, I'm doing it. So all the night before I'd been writing all this speech and didn't really know what I wanted to say but had a vague idea. You can't really hold speech notes out there, so I was completely ad lib all the way. And I stood there and it was freezing. It was like minus two degrees on a Canberra, frosty, cold, bitterly cold morning. And, like, I was shaking. I could feel my body shaking. I felt like I was going to throw up. And I've got this really bad, um, like, when I'm nervous or anxious, I get really bad bloat. And so I look like I'm about three months pregnant. I'm like, my God, that's going to be the next thing that comes out, right? You know, <laughs> I've become a legitimate love child. So I was like bloaty and shaky and nervous. And actually, even in listening back to that interview now, like you can hear it in my voice, like I am passionate. It was also cold. And so sometimes that arrests your chest when you're out there. So that's a really physical reaction. But mm. since all of the reporting and everything that happened to me in 2018, because my adrenal, you know, gland was just, you know, pumping out all this adrenaline for the entire period of like six or eight weeks while I was in the media, it's a little bit broken now. So I don't mm. actually get any of these butterflies or nervous moments or the only way I can pick it up is if I'm a bit worried about something before I'm about to be brave or courageous is my breathing starts to get a little bit erratic and I can't kind of control it. So I did SAS at the start of the year, SAS Australia. Mm-hmm. I was recruit one in the in the second season. That shit crazy idea, by the way. Don't ever do it. No, actually, <laughs> I loved it. But, you know, we're up on these metal poles and, like, I had to ladder down and then walk across and I, I had an injury that I'd gone in with. And I'm like, oh, yeah, cool, off I go. And it wasn't until I... You know, I didn't feel nervous. I didn't get sweaty. I didn't get any of those things. It wasn't until I watched it back on TV when it screened later, like after the Olympics this year, whenever that was, um, where I looked down and I'm like, oh, shit, that was underneath me. I should have been really worried about that. But I, I didn't. I just kind of walked across it. And the only time where I, you know, could you could physically see a reaction was when they either gas masked me or drowned me. But, yeah, that's when my breathing became erratic. But everything else, mm. I was like, 
oh, yeah, cool, let's just go do that. So the hangover effect, the physicality of all of the trauma of 2018 still lives within my body. So there's definitely a sensory reaction to being courageous and mm. to, to firing and summons, summoning that courage in the moment. It's a little bit dodgy for me now because I don't have that fear or that nervous moment. So, you know, that stuff keeps us safe and that yeah. those reactions are designed by our bodies. You know, we've got our amygdala function in our brain that floods our bodies with all the chemicals that we need. I do listen in therapy clearly that, you know, <laughs> summons our bodies to say this is dangerous, don't do it, but that's all very numb for me now, which is a little bit disappointing and I hope one day it returns. Um, but lucky I've got a good road sense and I don't step out on the road and I don't rely on that gut instinct as much as, um, mm. as, much as I you know, someone who hasn't been through my experience would be able to do. And if we were to think about how we could encourage more women to make more brave moves, what would be your advice? What do you, what do you think we can be doing as women um, as a collective? I always think that we don't celebrate each other enough and we don't tell each other how proud of, you know, each of us that we are or we don't celebrate those moments Women can sometimes get bogged down in that, and, and I think men men do too, you know, reflecting oh, because of the way society conditions us, like why didn't you do this? And it's mm. always our fault, you know, like when you think about a rape victim or what were you wearing, how much did you have to drink? And, and now we're really starting to see this language shift whereas actually that's not your thing to be accountable for. So as women... We're always like, oh, shit, I should have done better. I shouldn't have worn that skirt. I shouldn't have drunk that much. You know, when all this happened to me, all I could think of, and, and sometimes it happens now, like I still ruminate on what what did I do wrong? Like where did I go wrong? And I'm like, girlfriend, you did nothing wrong. This was about them. And shifting that shame over where it belongs, which is absolutely not on me. And I think as women um, we don't cheer enough for each other. We don't remind ourselves first and foremost and we don't remind each other that, Girlfriend, this is not your shame. This is not your stuff to cut around. Give it right back to where it belongs. And I know Brené Brown does a lot of um, a lot of work around that 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 shame and not owning it. And and women, because of the way we are, you know, I, I think about going back to school when Mum was like, "Oh, just be nice to them." You know, you don't know what kind of life they've got at home, and all good and well. But actually, you know what, love, I deserve to be treated with a bit of respect too. Um, and so we learn to minimise, we learn to sort of take that backward step and go, well, I'm not justifiably good enough for this and I don't deserve this, so we don't step up and take it. So I think that that is definitely something that we can do for ourselves, but other women around us can, you know, foster that safety where we're like, actually, no, 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 right back over there. So one of the famous questions that I have been asked repeatedly, and this is where it really comes home to roost for me, about all of that reporting and, you know, having a male ex-member of my staff who'd been terminated make up such an egregious allegation that I, you know, was bragging and that I had flashed myself. A number of people said to me, oh, did he have a crush on you? Did he, was it, you know, a relationship that you'd been in that went bad? And I'm like, sorry, what? Like there is absolutely no way while ever my ass points to the ground that you can find a single justification, even if that were the case, which it wasn't, but why do we try and justify mm. that behaviour with even the thought that, oh, this looks, no, no, this is just a, a privileged white private school boy who thinks that this is okay. 
Ready to wake up every day and live your bravest life? Sign up today for our 365 Days of Brave and you will receive a daily brave message from Rachel Evans herself directly into your inbox, completely free of charge. Go to bravemedianetwork.com backslash 365 and sign up for your daily brave messages today. So there is a lot of work to be done, I think, when we're asking victim survivors in those moments about how and why it happened. And that that then, I think, you know, when women choose to be brave and, and can be courageous, they know that they're going to have that backup and that support, you know, that unconditional kind of, I see you, I, you're a great person, you're authentic, like I believe you, let's go forward. And we were talking a little bit before we started the recording about uh, women in politics. Firstly, do you think it, it's brave if a woman today joins the Australian Labor Party as a, you know, to, to actually become a candidate and, um, and represent, given your experience? I think any woman joining the Liberal Party or the Labor Party, where we are now, is probably batshit crazy, to be frank. That would be my first thought because there is just so much data. There is now a beautifully well-written, well-placed report that talks about all of the horrendous treatment that women are subjected to. Why would you put yourself through that? You know, we all think that we can be the change. It's like a bad boyfriend, right? You're like you date them and you're like, oh, they'll change, they'll change. Mm. I'm sorry, the parties aren't going to change. They have no intention of changing. It's structurally set up to not benefit women either when they get up to the legislative part of their job or whether you're in the machinations of the party room. Like, it is just not set up for women. And if I'm not the poster child for that, I don't know who is because there's plenty of other stories where the big ones that, you know, everyone knows about comes from as we spoke about. But I think what is more brave and the only hope that I have as a country that we'll get off first base when it comes to our treatment of women and, and maybe make a home run and actually fix it once and for all is the independents that are stepping up. Mm-hmm. So it's quite a safe option to join a political party where you don't think you've got enough skill, so you need to rely on the big end of town, so to speak, to fund your campaign, to, to get your volunteers and to do all of that. And that's quite a daunting process. But when you're doing it in the safety of a political party, it's not as daunting. You kind of can, okay, well, they let other people take the reins and let them have the power over you. But what is more impressive and more courageous right now that we're seeing is this shift to, and I will say a lot of women candidates because I've not seen any big male names actually take up their space and go, well, I'm sick of the way this is being done. I'm going to run as an independent. I'm going to get my own volunteers. I'm going to make my own party structure or campaign structure. I'm going to raise my own funds. It's incredibly difficult. So I'm going to, I'm in a marginal seat or I'm coming up against a really big name liberal or a really egregious liberal like, like we've seen, um, you know, Allegra Spender and, and Zoe Daniel. They're not just taking on a candidate. Like when you are taking on that you're actually taking on the candidate, the political party, which is, you know, usually quite wealthy, then all of the backers. And if you're in the Labor, if you're taking on a Labor member, you're taking on the unions. And if you're a Liberal, you're taking on, you know, the business community. So it's not just a 1v1 sort of scenario. Like you are literally in this David and Goliath battle. So for me, 
a woman joining the Labor Party to run from a Labor Party seat, girlfriend, forget it. Like move mm. on. Have the courage and have the vulnerability and the authenticity. Like if you want to be brave and you 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 want to be, to be different, do it yourself. <laughs> and what you find when you when you lead from the front like that is you look at like Zoe and Zali and um, even Karen Phelps when she ran, is that people will come with you on that journey because if you're sick of it and if you're sick of the way things are being done, you can be rest assured that other people are as well and you will find like-minded people by simply by showing up and being authentic. And when you do that, then, you know, these magic things happen, like we elect Zali Stegall over a sitting member, Tony Abbott, and then she's got three years to sort of plead her case and she's been a fantastic local member. And, you know, she's 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 been able to sort of do some really imp- important things which have given, I guess, a bit more hope to other people. You know, I know of personal circumstances where she's been involved in helping to write the terms of reference for the Kate Jenkins re- Review, for example, and protecting the survivors who were going to give evidence. And she's one of the only people that, you know, will actually go in there and fight for it whereas you talk to Labor members, which I still do, and they're like, oh, no, we don't want to do that because it'll do this. And I'm like, yeah, mm. you're taking a group of survivors here, mate. Like, you don't get to politicise this. We need these things done. And I was able to talk to, to, to Zali about it and get her to, you know, make sure those amendments reflected the importance of what was being done. So I think that the brave piece is with the independence, I think, that, as a country and as a society, we should just almost give up on on the two major parties as ever going to be able to shift or help or change the story for women. I wrote a, an article a couple of years ago about Labor window dressing and it's almost like, um, you know, like I made that analogy earlier of like being in a, an abusive relationship. Like Labor is the coercive controlling kind of abuse and the Liberal Party is the very overt physical abuse that we're all used to seeing. And being able to step back and look at it and go, I mean, I've lived through both, and going, yeah, what, what the Labor Party do to women is very passive. We we put them all out there in our photos and we're like, look at us go. We've got nearly 50%, aren't we, glitter? And we get jazz hands and we have all the photos and it's mm-hmm. colour and movement and you're in a yellow jacket, you're in a pink one, you're in a red one, you're going to wear green today. And then behind closed doors... That's when the shit really hits the fan, right? Like that's when all of that coercion and all of that, you know, manoeuvring and the manipulation and that's when that all happens. But the Labor Party on the surface, oh, aren't we great? They produced our first female prime minister, didn't they? Yeah, all the glitter hands. And the reason why I say that that's true and the reason why that can be true is when Julia Gillard was subjected to all of the misogyny and all of the sexism and all of the stuff that was going on. Like, not that she needed anyone to step forward and be her mouthpiece. And it's the same for me. Like, when I was going through it, I didn't need anyone to be my mouthpiece. What I needed was allies. And what Mm. I needed was people to stand shoulder to shoulder with me and to form this protection and to say, sorry, are we really talking about this in 2018? This is what we're going to reduce our politics and this feisty, young, first-term single mum who's coming, like, is that what we're doing here? But I had no allies. So, again, once the um, the doors were closed in the Labor Party world, they all abandoned me. They jumped ship. So I had a, a housemate that said, I can't live with you anymore. I had friends in politics. I stopped getting invited to dinners when, when I was still serving my, my term out. They just went, no, well, 
like mm-hmm. like I, I was a leper, I had friends come to Canberra in the last few sitting weeks. So you, you might remember that at the time they made me resign, but I had to stay in the relationship. I had to stay serving as a, as a member until the following year. So six months I had to continue serving, which I call was like being separated but under the same roof you know Mm. so there's there's so many similarities to my abusive relationship with the Labor Party that it's sometimes hard to distinguish the behavior so I think that women have an opportunity and can play a role here and and the women independents that are coming through now I'm just I'm really inspired by but also have this renewed sense of hope that maybe we'll get somewhere this time Um, Because I just don't see that the Labor Party who've had this idea about gender equality for a really, really long time are actually getting the uh, the memo. And that speaks true to when, you know, at the start of the year I asked Albanese for the apology, which he promised me, oh, I wasn't the leader at the time. I didn't commission the report. I don't hold a hose. Like Mm. he's, he's all sort of hands off. And then I had the same response from Mark Dreyfus who said, and he's the wannabe Attorney General, right? He's like, oh, but it was the New South Wales branch of the Labor Party. And I'm like, I really care. Like I want an apology. You guys did the wrong thing and none of them will own it. And so I'm like, you don't take gender equality seriously. You're not interested. There is no recourse for me. I wasn't protected under the Sex Discrimination Act. In fact, no female politician has ever been protected under sex discrimination and the sexual harassment at work um, until two months ago um, when Kate Jenkins put it in the um, Respect at Work report and then that's one of the recommendations that was adopted for parliamentarians. Now, if you think about the Sex Discrimination Act, um, every Labor parliamentarian from here to King- Kingdom Come will tell you that it was a great Labor initiative, you know, Bob Hawke, champion of women, not at all, at all a womanizer. you know, instituted this. Well, why was the cave out or the, 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 the carve out clause not to include members of parliament? Like, sure, guys, you're never going to rely on this. You're never going to need this. But the women you work with do. And there were women in politics then. And so we went from 1984 all the way to 2021 without a single woman being protected by that act, an act that they were so proud to bring in, an act that they deliberately designed to not protect women who they worked with. And it took from 1984 to 2021 to actually have it changed. And I'm like, yeah, sorry, Labor Party, I just don't think that you're there yet. I don't don't know that you'll ever get there. I'm sorry, but female independence and that is an incredibly courageous thing. I, I do feel sorry for there's a lot of women in the Labor Party that I know of who can't speak up and can't speak out again about what's happening because... They're either servants to the patriarchy and they get rewarded by playing in it or they don't want to become a victim the same way that I did. Mm. And that is is what happens, you know. You are listening to The Very Brave Podcast. So we've heard about three times in your life that stand out as being brave. I'm sure that you've got many more brave moves to come. Can you share your next brave move with me? Sure. So I have um, recently launched a uh, website and a business called Brave by Design. I have taken a um, a management ship with Saxton's. So I'll be speaking to anybody who wants to have me along as their keynote speaker about um, being brave by design, courageous by choice, um, and also kickstarting. It's kind of like Brave by Design school or boot camp and. Um, going back to those really core things 
around what makes you brave, what makes you resilient and what keeps you being able to continue to show up where people will be able to log in online and, and do Brave by Design School. And that's my next thing. That's what she did next. Excellent. Do you ever feel like there's any return to politics uh, on the horizon as an independent? Everyone <laughs> loves to ask me that question. I mean, there is absolutely, unequivocally, I loved my job. Like I had been really doing politics my whole life without even knowing it. I'd, I'd been an advocate in my community doing, you know, I was, I, I was the chair of the Homelessness Interagency. I did a bunch of stuff for inclusivity and accessibility in my community for the council and the um, accessibility committee. I've always advocated for a better world. I've always wanted for better than what we've got. Um, I absolutely miss my job. It was the great, like the hardest work I've ever done but the most rewarding and I, and I do miss it. So I've never, ever said never and I am only young so there is a little bit of time left and, and some days, you know, today is, today is a good day. Today is a good day. Two, last week when the um, Kate Jenkins report came out, that was not a good day. Actually, that was a terrible week um, mm-hmm. where all those triggers and all that stuff comes back. So, yeah, I do, I do, I do miss it and I would love for there to be a way for me to find my way back there but it's not the case at the moment and um I think my biggest fear is that once you've got political enemies you've got political enemies for life you know these Mm. people have been hanging around the parties since they were 15 years old and they remember who voted them out on this committee who didn't support them then and they've got very long memories and I'm like you guys just need Mm. to move on and get a life so I think that I would be probably public enemy number one for a few of them and I'm not, I don't know that I'm prepared to be called a flasher and Sharon Stone again, but the media do behave a lot better to me these days, funnily enough, when you take a defamation case and you win it. So I guess that's sort of something that I would, you know, be, be much more alive to the idea of, but not at the moment. I've got to finish renovating my house block style and uh, <laughs> get my Brave by Design students passing and graduating mm. um, and just not not now. I think I've just got a little bit more to heal yet. Yeah, and that is totally understandable. Well, I really look forward to seeing what um, the next little while brings and um, you launching Brave by Design and we might see you out on the speaking circuit very soon. Well, I hope so once these borders and COVID is over and the life that we had a couple of years ago returns. Um, I do miss people sometimes, so it would be nice. <laughs> Well, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Very Brave Podcast. If you like this episode, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Also, remember to give us a rating and review. I'll be reading out reviews on future podcast episodes, and I'd love to share your insights. For more information and additional resources, check out the website at www.therealrachel.com and www.bravemedianetwork.com. I love hanging out on Instagram as well, so make sure you follow me there at The Real Rachel Evans. And let's continue this conversation. I look forward to chatting with you next time.